Minister, welcome to Toronto. We thank you for taking the time to be with us today to discuss the federal government's criminal justice agenda. This agenda had its origins in the five priorities announced in the 2005-2006 election campaign. Its impetus at the time was the Boxing Day shooting of 15-year-old Jane Kreba in broad daylight just a few blocks away from here. Then opposition leader Stephen Harper said, this is not the Toronto I grew up in. So protecting Canadian families and communities by strengthening the justice system became a priority for the Conservative government. Since that time, this priority has grown into a larger suite of changes to our criminal justice system, some of which have attracted a fair amount of comment or controversy. Our guest today, the Honourable Rob Nicholson, Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada, has dedicated his life to the law and to the service of the Canadian people. He was first elected to the House of Commons representing Niagara Falls in 1984 and became Minister for Science and Small Business in 1993. He returned to Parliament in 2004 and was one of only two people with federal cabinet experience in the first Harper cabinet. In January 2007, the minister left the position of government house leader to undertake his present portfolio. It has, it has been his task in the previous parliament and in this one to shepherd through the government's criminal justice agenda. Today he will bring us up to date on how this initiative will affect our lives. Minister, welcome to the podium. Well, thank you very much, uh, Nick, and uh, thank you very much uh, for your kind invitation to be with you here. I'm, I, my notes say, of course, I'm pleased to be here. I'm particularly pleased to have been able to get here from Niagara Falls out on the Queen E here. It's I mean, a, a three-hour journey uh, in, in the weather today, so I'm particularly satisfied that uh, I'm able to be with you today. I want to begin by making a few remarks uh, on the news yesterday regarding a divorce proceeding that is currently proceeding through the courts. First, I want to be very clear that our government has no intention of reopening the debate on the definition of marriage. The case reported in the media involves the fact that under current law, some marriages performed in Canada could not be dissolved in Canada. This is a legislative gap left by the Liberal government of the day when the law was changed in 2005. The confusion and pain resulting from this gap, in my opinion, is completely unfair to those who are affected. I want to make it very clear that in our government's view, these marriages should be valid. We will change the Civil Marriage Act so that any marriages performed in Canada that aren't recognized in the couple's home jurisdiction will be recognized in Canada. This, of course, will apply to all marriages performed in Canada. We have been clear that we have no desire to reopen this issue, both myself and the Prime Minister, to consider that debate to be closed. Je veux aussi que soit 
très clair que, aux yeux de notre gouvernement, ces mariages devraient être valides. J'ai demandé à mes, mes fonctionnaires d'examiner toutes les possibilités pour remédier à la lacune législative héritée des libéraux en 2005. La confusion et la douleur résulte de cette lacune est totalement injuste pour les personnes concernées. Nous, nous modifierons la loi sur le mariage civil, pourquoi les mariages concluent au Canada, qui ne sont pas reconnus dans le lieu de résidence du couple soit reconnu au Canada. Ladies and gentlemen, as we begin this new year, I think it's an appropriate time to look back on the accomplishments that we have made up to this point and take stock of where we're going. I'm pleased that 2012 marks the start of my sixth year as Canada's Minister of Justice. Uh, the work that I've done along with my colleagues in the justice portfolio have been uh, the most rewarding and fulfilling of my career and I'm honored and grateful that the Prime Minister has given me this opportunity. I've become interested in politics uh, at a very early age. I, I think I've mentioned to some of you I, I wrote to John Diefenbaker back when I was 11 years old. It was during the Cuban Missile Crisis and uh, I wrote to him just to let him know that he had my complete support and what he was, <laughs> he was doing on behalf of Canada and he of course wrote me back thanking me uh, very much uh, for that support and uh, uh, I still have that letter of course framed in my office and some uh, diligent staffer a couple of years later when he was uh, uh, opposition leader uh, must have pulled my letter out uh, of the file when he visited Niagara Falls and asked me would I be interested of course to meet and have my picture taken uh, with John Diefenbaker and of course that was one of the great uh, thrills uh, of my life. Uh, I've had a great opportunity, a wonderful uh, career in Canadian politics. I'm pleased just within this portfolio that we have passed 19 justice bills since 2006, 23 if you add the five separate bills that uh, were combined to be part of the Tackling Violent Crime Act. Our day-to-day -day lives have changed a great deal, of course, since Canada's first criminal code was enacted back in 1892. Much like other democracies around the world, can Canadian society and its values have and are continuously evolving, and our justice system, of course, has to evolve and stay up to date. It's my role as Justice Minister and Attorney General to maintain the integrity of the justice system, and in particular, make it more efficient and effective to meet the reasonable expectations of Canadians in the 21st century. Unfortunately, the proliferation of drugs and violent crime is a reality in this day and age, and it is our job as parliamentarians to deal with those issues as best we can. In, in 2010, for example, there were over 95,000 violent crimes in Canada. Child pornography offenses were up 36%, firearms offenses up 11%, criminal harassment up 5%, and drug offenses, as you may have guessed, have increased as well. And if some crime statistics are going down, that's great. That means uh, that uh, these measures that we are undertaking are effective and everybody working together is helping, but everybody wants all crime to go down. And, but wanting crime to go down is one thing. The reality is that some statistics are higher now than they have been in the past. 
Well, we're committed to reducing the incidence of crime, and we're doing this with a very comprehensive justice agenda. And in my opinion, the victims of crime are not statistics. Every victim matters. The truth of the matter is that no parent wants their child to be a victim of a homicide or a sexual assault. You could ask Lynn Lacoste, whose 19-year-old son was senselessly murdered at a house party in 2004. Her son matters. No parents wants their child to be, fall prey to a pedophile. In fact, parents list abduction and sexual exploitation as two of the three concerns that they have for, Canadian, for their Canadian children. Any story on child pornography, whether it's about the pedophile who perpetrated the, the act or the one that watched it online, outrages each and every one of us. When involving a child, the consensus seems to be that no sentence is high enough for these criminals. No, crim no Canadian wants to be the victim either of fraud or property crime. And you can ask uh, any one of the 9,000 victims who were uh, deceived and betrayed by Vincent Lacroix in the, the Norgorg scandal. Large-scale frauds like that scandal, the Earl Jones case, the Montreal, Montreal scam can wipe out people's savings and can be a huge setback in their lifestyle. No Canadians, in addition, want to live next door to a grow-up. Surrey BC Fire Services conducted a study and found that a home with a grow-up is 24 times more likely to catch fire than a home without one. Even more troubling, these fires aren't always reported because nobody actually lives in those dwellings, but are in fact families living right next door or across the street that have to report it. There are countless stories of Canadians that have been violently victimized, and they are the first to lose confidence in the criminal justice system. Many do not like to think these things happen in Canada until it happens to them or their loved ones. But if you ask any parent, I'm sure they would tell you that the last thing they want their child to do is get involved in a life of crime or become addicted to drugs, but sadly that sometimes happens in this country. According to the Canadian Centre on Substance Abuse, Illicit drugs, drug use costs Canadian society an estimated $8.2 billion a year. Statistics show that offences involving certain types of illicit drugs, such as crystal meth, ecstasy, LSD, barbiturates, and date rape drugs, rose by 168% between 1997 and 2007. As a parent, the fact that these are readily available is unacceptable. It is our job as parliamentarians to give the tools to law enforcement agents to prevent this and other crimes from happening. When our government was first elected in 2006, one of our immediate goals was to do just that and restore balance within the Canadian justice system. Despite what our critics say, we believe in a balanced and comprehensive approach to justice, an approach that is responsive to what is happening on our streets. We want to prevent further victimization and make sure that Canada's most serious violent criminals are taken off the streets. Year after year, we have heard stories of violent criminals who offended upon their release. In almost every case, a similar story emerged. A violent offender, despite showing no willingness to be rehabilitated, was very often given a light sentence. Not surprisingly, Many Canadians found this to be a problem and it led to a lack of confidence in our criminal justice system. In 2004 and in every election since, 
The Conservative Party of Canada has run on a promise to put the rights of victims and law-abiding Canadians first. We have taken strong and decisive action with respect to our justice legislation, and this has been in direct response to the very clear message Canadians gave us. Canadians are within their rights to make these ask some of these difficult questions. And upon receiving our first mandate, we set out to restore a sense of balance in the criminal justice system in this country. I'm very proud of what we have accomplished over the last six years. Just recently, we introduced the Safe Streets and Communities Act, which is now before the Senate. The bill proposes increased penalties for sexual offenses against children, as well as creates two new offenses aimed at conduct that could facilitate or enable the commission of a sexual offense against a child. We've targeted organized crime by imposing tougher sentences for the production and possession of illicit drugs for the purpose of trafficking. We've addressed the issue of violent young offenders. We are ending house arrest for property and other serious crimes through uh, eliminating the use of conditional sentences. We've proposed legislation that addresses the, uh, the rights and concerns of victims of terrorism. And finally, we've proposed legislation to prevent the trafficking, abuse, and exploitation of vulnerable immigrants. Much has been written and said about our government's introduction and passage of mandatory minimum penalties for certain crimes. I would like to take a moment to dispel some of the myths on this issue. First of all, mandatory minimum sentences have a long history in Canada. We are not the first government to introduce them. Indeed, over the years, both Liberal and Conservative governments have imposed mandatory sentences. And today, the Criminal Code contains over 40 offences which carry a minimum sentence. Criminal organizations that rely on the drug trade do not respect the current penalties. They simply see them as a cost of doing business. Vancouver, for example, is one of a number of cities where organized crime has flourished, activity which is fueled in part by the drug trade. Chuck Doucette, who is a retired RCMP officer and an expert in these gang wars, blames weaker sentences for contrib contributing to the problem. In 2009, he said, quote, One of the main reasons that so many gangs got involved in cannabis grow operations in the Vancouver area is because of the weaker sentences here compared to sentences for trafficking elsewhere. We aim to correct that in the Safe Streets and Communities Act. It contains tougher penalties which specifically targets the illicit drug trade. And contrary to what some of our opponents say, we are not looking to go after substance abuse victims or experimenting teenagers. We are making no changes to the laws with regards to simple possession. In fact, the legislation we've introduced has a specific exemption to allow for the use of drug treatment courts so that those who are unfortunately addicted can get the help that they need. The kinds of offenders that we are targeting who are those who are in the business of exploiting the addiction of others for personal profit. The irony is that many who hold top positions in these gangs do not necessarily use the drugs themselves, but they do produce, traffic and import illicit drugs and often use those profits to purchase weapons. 
These weapons then end up on our streets, and let me assure you, these criminals do not bother registering their firearms. I want to see such people receive appropriate sentences, and I believe Canadians do as well. As a parliamentarian and the Attorney General of Canada, I am expected to draft and enact laws which are reflective of the values of the citizens who elect me and indeed our government. The fact that we believe a minimum period of incarceration is, in ju is justified for certain offenses, just as previous governments have throughout our history. Like with maximum sentences, Parliament has the right to set minimum sentences, and we believe that mandatory minimum sentences are effective. The other party, the third party, the Liberal Party, must agree since they've imposed mandatory minimum penalties for gun crimes. For example, we think that they are effective for drug offences as well. The fact is that police and prosecutors, those that work hard to keep our country safe, have been calling for such sentences for the most serious drug crimes for quite some time. They know all too well what the reality is in our street with respect to drug dealers and how they are infiltrating our communities and can cause irreparable harm to young Canadians in particular. Don Spicer from the Halifax Regional Police said it best in 2010 when he said, quote, we need to send a message to the offenders that drug trafficking and cultivation are serious offenses while at the same time sending a message to our citizens that the justice system takes these crimes seriously, end of quote. Our government has listened to Canadians, including victims and police, and we have acted. Since 2007, I've traveled across this country from coast to coast, and I've listened to victims, community leaders, police, my provincial uh, counterparts, hearing from them as to how best we can improve the criminal code. Victims tell me they want to ensure that nobody has to suffer the same loss and frustration as they have felt. Police impart upon me the necessity for more robust legislative tools so they can better protect Canadians. The, the provinces provide that important regional perspective into crime and justice issues. They often come forward with recommendations and requests for the criminal code. This input is crucial and I welcome the views of all stakeholders and Canadians in general. And we have responded. For years, for instance, families of murder victims were compelled to relive their horrific experience because of what was once known as the Faint Hope Clause. Convicted murderers were given the possibility of parole after 15 years. This meant additional uh, applications for early parole. In most cases, the victims' families members felt compelled to travel long distances to provide testimony, and in some cases, some cases, the offender would cancel the hearing at the last second. This would obviously not only cause a significant delay, but essentially re-victimizes the families. Victims like Sharon Rosenfeld for years have asked uh, the previous administration to put an end to this practice, but it was never acted upon. I can tell you it has been very rewarding that our government has introduced, passed, and brought into force legislation that repeals the Faint Hope Clause and has eased at least some of the suffering that victims will endure. Likewise, Canadian Canada's police forces across the countries have provided insight and advice in our criminal justice system, and they are on the front line. They are the experts when it comes to fighting crime, and we've listened to them. One example is the so-called 
two-beer defense, which allowed impaired drivers to successfully challenge scientifically gathered breathalyzer evidence. This was understandably a great source of frustration for our police forces as they have seen firsthand the horrific consequences of impaired driving. We have eliminated that defense. In the area of child protection, we've made a series of amendments to increase penalties for child sexual offenders, improve the National Sex Offender Registry, and make the reporting for the first time of child pornography by internet service providers mandatory. I remember meeting with them a couple of years ago, and in fairness to them, they said, we realize we have a moral obligation to turn over information that comes to our attention on child pornography. I agree, I said, you have a moral obligation, but I believe you must have a legal obligation as well, and that now is the law of this country. The police and victims advocates provide their expert advice on all different issues, and we're only too pleased to work with them. We've given police new tools to fight auto theft, identity theft, and drive-by and other reckless shootings. I conduct regularly consultation, regular consultations with my provincial counterparts. For instance, the practice of judges giving two-for-one or even three-for-one credit for time served off the sentence of a convicted offender, they told me helps undermine confidence in the criminal justice system. We've heard from experts, we had heard from experts how offenders sometimes would intentionally delay their trial because they knew they knew the longer they spent in remand, the shorter their sentence would be. The Attorney General of British Columbia, I remember bringing a case to my point, he says a, a guy didn't even want to have a bail hearing because he wanted to be racking up the two-for-one two for credit. Well, uh, this whole practice was documented by an expert, Dr. Matt Logan, who is a retired operational psychologist. He said, quote, the people who are pulling the two-for-ones are clogging the court system and just backing it up even further. So I was extremely gratified to see the two-for-one disappear, end of quote. A number of attorneys general called on the federal government to act in this regard, and we did. For those who question why we have placed such a strong emphasis on dealing with crime in this country, I would suggest that we take the time to do what many of us in this government has done. Speak with victims, speak with people who are on the front line, and, uh, and they will tell you the message that they want their rights, their interests to be heard and taken into account. 2011 was certainly a momentous year in Canadian politics. I will never take for granted the mandate we've been given to keep our streets and communities safe. Canadians expect us to continue to take action when it comes to strengthening our uh, justice system, and I can assure them that uh, we will continue to do so. We will have a busy legislative agenda planned for this year, and we will fulfill those campaign promises that uh, we made to Canadians. Uh, I would like to think that these first six years are just a prologue to the, the work uh, that we have ahead of us. Our plans are comprehensive. Our focus is simple. Uh, we, we want to restore a balance so that Canadians can have complete confidence in their criminal justice system. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for the opportunity and for your attention here this afternoon. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Danny Asaf, and I have the honor and the pleasure of thanking Minister Nicholson for his remarks. 
Firstly, uh, Minister, we want to thank you for taking the time to come and explain the background and the context in which these le this le legislative initiative is being undertaken by you and the government. And we're glad we live in a country that promotes this uh, transparency and uh, access to uh, uh, people that serve this country, such as yourself. It is basic that role of government to protect Canadians, and it, a sentiment reflected in some of our foundational concepts such as peace order and good government. And in addition, this country has always been very fortunate to have ministers of justice such as yourself to serve that have both the capability and the mindset to ensure that all of these objectives are done in creating such a great and unique and just society such as Canada. Thank you very much for your long service. Thank you very much for your remarks today on behalf of all of us, and we appreciate the time you have taken this afternoon. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much, Danny. And uh, thanks again, Minister. Now, before we adjourn for lunch, uh, please bear with me while I list a few upcoming events. If I can get my fingers working. On January 18th, Foreign Affairs Minister John Baird will outline the measures contained in the Border Action Plan and its benefits for Toronto, Ontario, and Canada. On January 24th, Premier Dalton McGuinty will present a plan for Ontario families and making Ontario the place where the best educated workers make cutting-edge products and services. And on February 3rd, to kickstart our CEO series, we will hear from Reed Hastings, co-founder and CEO of Netflix. To order tickets to these or any Canadian Club events, please visit our website at canadianclub.org. Don't forget that a podcast of today's event will be available in a couple of days on iTunes. Simply vi uh, visit the event listing on our website to download it. While you're online, I invite you to check out our Twitter feed. You can follow us at CDNCLUBTO, short for Canadian Club Toronto, for all the latest updates. This concludes our television programming which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. We continue to be grateful to Rogers TV and 680 News for their promotion of Canadian Club events. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please rise as you are able and join me in a toast to Canada. To Canada. Enjoy your lunch. <laughs>